0: Uh, today, I have with me George Burnett, the past CEO of North Central University. George, if you want to take a second, introduce yourself. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome from whatever
1: time zone you're joining us. Uh, thank you, Bob, uh, and to Gray for inviting me today. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: George, I was trying to think how long we've known each other. Um, and, you know, what your what your life was before we all got into higher ed. Um, I think Bob, you and, you and I idea. know
1: each other back from the days of AT&T. And it's funny when you talk to younger people and you say, you know, I used to work in long distance when you used to pay by the minute. So that's uh, that's how long we've known each other since uh, since before Al Gore invented the internet.
0: Yep, that's right. in fact, I think that was one of our first projects was trying to figure out if there's anything you could do with the AT&T calling card on the internet. Um, <laughs> a, a whole business that doesn't exist anymore.
1: Nope, uh, I remember operator services used to cost 11 cents a minute. You can't even conceive of that in today's world.
0: Yeah, um, what's an operator? Uh-huh. So, uh, anyhow, um, and then I, I think we started together uh, back when, in you know in, in earlier days, um, and then uh, we we caught back up at, at North Central. So, um, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I've always enjoyed working with you as someone who is always looking ahead. And um, very creative. So I think, uh, you know, stemming originally from your experience, was it one of the major ad agencies, as I recall?
1: Right. Uh, well, this was back a place called Benton and Bowles, but uh, it's all morphed into the big mega global uh, ad agencies at this point. But uh, yeah, I've started in the advertising business then went to telecom at at t where I think you and I met. Yeah. And then like all of us, maybe on this call, there are certain people who didn't start in higher ed but uh, ended up there as part of their career and spent the last uh, 20 years really working in uh, various parts of higher ed, mainly in the for-profit sector, um, mainly in online.
0: Yeah. Well, I think in that, you know, you really ended up on the cutting edge of the whole online thing. Um, So what we'd like to talk about today is things that you've seen in your travels that enabled growth in higher ed. I'm I'm tired of this whole spiel that, you know, there's a declining population of people who are college age and woe is me. And so enrollment declines are, you know, uh, just, we all have to live with it. Um, I've seen too many organizations that decided not to live with it and, um, set out to grow and did it or at least maintain their enrollment and did it successfully. So I would love your ideas on how to do that.
1: Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, let me start, though, by talking a little bit about the environment. If there's anything I've learned from our friends in regional accreditation, is that you know any institution of higher learning or, frankly, any corporate entity in the commercial space really has to understand the, you know, the environment in which they're operating mm-hmm. and kind of the major forces that are affecting um, their degrees of latitude and the environment in which you know, they're having to produce whatever results their mission dictates. Uh, so you know, I don't think there's any doubt though and and I, I I appreciate your pushback because sometimes it's easy to say, you know there's nothing I can do because you know the the world's against me, the environment isn't good or whatever. but i but I think it is fair for any institution and any of the folks who are on this call today to at least acknowledge and and my point of view is that we're living in an environment in higher ed of headwinds. Mm. That doesn't mean that the outcome or There's nothing you can do about it or the outcome is inevitable. But I think there are several headwinds which says that the job of growing is harder today. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's an old saying that a rising tide, and I know you live in New England, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And I would say that we do not have a rising tide in higher ed today. Let me just give you a couple of data points to why I think we live in a headwind environment versus a tailwind or or, uh, the tides going out instead of coming in. Uh, one is, and this is a phenomenon of only about the last 12 to 18 months, but obviously today, right now, we're living in an environment of rising interest rates and inflation, and that just makes the economics of higher ed harder. Uh, and frankly, this is something that hasn't happened in the U.S. economy for several decades, so it's new, and it's affecting all of the parents and all of the um, the potential students, particularly in traditional high, higher ed, yet it affects people throughout their um, you know, their learning journey. The second thing is, I think we're, you know, we've been in an environment where tuitions have gone up pretty consistently for, you know, at least, you know, the 20 years I've been around in higher ed. Um, and, you know, I think there's increasing because of just the absolute cost, uh, you know, there's downward pressure on, uh, on tuitions now, or certainly the limit of your ability to price and you used to be a right. consultant back, you know, what's your pricing power? Well, i think pricing power has gotten lower in the in the higher ed sector whether it's profit or profit or non-for-profit so you've got an inflationary environment which is driving up your costs and your pricing power incentives is going down i think there's also a, a, a unfortunately i think a bit of a false narrative but one that is still there which is the the skepticism about the value of degrees mm-hmm. and that's a very pernicious problem Because people can say, well, I can do without that. Uh, You know, I'm not a believer in that. I believe degrees are still the most um, critical step in upward mobility in in, um, today's economy. But there's growing skepticism or growing belief that alternatives, alternative credentials, boot camps, et cetera. They're somehow substitutes. Uh, And while I think they're complementary, I don't subscribe personally to the substitute argument. Well, I think a lot of people think they can do without any of it. Uh, and, and and potentially might be for certain segments of the population that might be valid. To make that a generalization, I think probably gets it wrong and probably gets it wrong for more people than less, okay? So uh, I don't think the exception, you know, the person who doesn't need a degree and does exceptionally well, uh, maybe in a skilled trade, uh, that doesn't prove the rule. But give me well, two other just, ones.
0: Um, chime in there, George, Rena. Uh, if you go to the Georgetown Center for Workforce and Education, uh, they actually did it. Made an effort to do the ROI on a college education. Now they were looking at four-year colleges, so this would be different for two-year colleges, for example, or for grad school. Um, and the 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 average for a liberal arts college was over nine hundred thousand dollars in um, incremental earnings, um, the, the present value of incremental earnings, um, and it was very similar actually for engineering, uh, liberal arts and the other group that they studied. So it, it wasn't so much about program, it really was about did you go to college or not? Um, and, you know, who knows if those numbers will, uh, you know, continue. But uh, $35,000 last I knew of average debt, if I can buy a million dollar income stream, that's a pretty darn good deal. Right. Um, so I do. And that's, that's why, why I, Go ahead. to your point, that's why I think
1: that's why I called it a pernicious argument. I think it undermines for the majority of people, the value proposition, because what it's arguing is there are, I think a minority, but there are people who don't value from that. And they're using that to make the generalized argument, well, the the degrees aren't valuable. And I think that's a, that's not actually, I don't actually think it's a true argument. The other issue is that I think it has a lot of unintended negative consequences.
0: Yeah.
1: let me just raise two other issues because I don't want to harp on, on the negative, but I think it, it provides context. I think at least today, and this is a very you know temporal topic, I think the uncertainty in the department today around Title IV, I mean, are mm-hmm. they going to give money back? Are you, I, you know, is the Supreme Court going to rule one way or another? I mean, you're just creating a lot of uncertainty. So, you know, and that uncertainty, I think, has unpredictable uh, effects on 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 parents and on students and on uh, lifelong workers and things about you know how they're going to take advantage of or participate in higher education in whatever form you know is right for them, and and then the final thing is I think the system is at least as we looked at it, um, it tends to be that you know and I don't actually think this is good either, but I think it's an environmental thing is big as winning today, um, you know the people who are really succeeding tend to be the universities that hire it at scale. I mean, you know, if you think about in the online business, yes, it started out as a lot of entrepreneurial for-profit businesses, but the big ones today are the SNHUs, the Arizona States, the Western Governors. Uh, You know, these are the 100,000 to 150,000 student, you know, um, franchises online today. It's not the um, the, the for-profit sector, Um, that, you know, that, that change has happened over the last uh, decade. So Mm -hmm. I think you have a tough, if some of your audience have come from smaller, more niche plays in higher education, they're not one of the big systems or things like that. I think that what we've seen in the last decade or so is that the, the big tend to win because they're dealing in scale and cost economies and the sophistication of dealing in the internet. And that doesn't really lend itself to people who are smaller. So you know, it's
0: true um, though there's a, we're taught here to talk about growth. And certainly those guys have been some of the, well, by far the biggest success stories from a growth standpoint. But one of the things I, I looked at a while back is um, where did all those students come from? And my expectation is they came from all sorts of on ground schools, but you know, students chose to go online. Um, now, what I'm about to say isn't literally true, but when you look at the top 10, most of the numbers that I saw were actually share shift, so it was one big player dying while some other big player uh, grew. So University of Phoenix is an example. I think had dropped two hundred thousand completions, which you know Western Governors and Southern New Hampshire were very happy to pick up for them. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, you know, one of the big um, schools that supports uh, the uh, soldiers, um, you know, also declined. There were several. Who had you know tens of thousands of of students, uh, you know that they lost. Um, so I think a lot of the growth in the big boys in uh, online actually came from other online players.
1: Sounds very logical. The other phenomena that I, we saw within North Central is that when people left us, they actually didn't go to another school. A lot of times they just did stop their education. Right. So uh, and we see that in the NL, NSLDS database. You know, when people leave, they track their Title four, Did they go someplace else? And we saw mostly that the phenomenon was they just stopped going to school. And so- uh, I don't. I by the way, I didn't mean that those segment,
0: people um, literally went from school A to school B. I think it was when people were competing for enrollment, some of the schools were winning and some of the schools were losing in those battles. No, that's and, right. Uh, so they just, you know, physically chose a different school to start with.
1: That's correct. And, but I'm also saying that, you know, when we get attrition- you know a lot of times that attrition is just simply to not not being in right. school, uh, which you know, again, you lose the revenue whether somebody picks it up or not, it's a different question. But look, I don't want the, the audience to feel that somehow this is doom and gloom. I just think, I think my view is realistically, we live in a, in a world of headwinds, but that's not deterministic, it just means that you have to think of your strategies, which I think is then going to be the next part of our conversation in the context that oh, it's harder than it was 10 or 15 years ago. That doesn't mean it's not doable. It just means you have to think harder because there's more things that have to be done for you to be successful, no matter where once, your starting
0: point is. I once took my family uh, canoeing and um, we arrived very late. So the guy said, look, you can't do what everybody else does and paddle down the river. You have to paddle up the river. And so we got out there and we tried to paddle against the current in this river and we made it I, maybe a quarter, half a mile over the course of an hour. Um, and then we turned around that was, you know, paddling against the, the wind, if you will, or the tide. And we turned around, we're back there in five minutes. So yeah, it is a lot tougher, um, when you're doing this against headwinds.
1: Yeah. So I would like to encourage people who are, are listening here
0: that there's a lot
1: you can do. We're going to get to it in a moment and we'll talk about all the things that, you know, I think about when I think about institutions, no matter where their starting point is and what their mission is, the things that they might consider in terms of uh, how they might grow.
0: So how would they do
1: that? Oh, I'm glad you asked. That's fun. Let me just, I'll I'll just list a number of things that that come to mind. If, you know, if I were sitting in an institution of higher learning today, I was sitting in this environment, which we just described and we won't harp on, uh, you know, what are the things that I would be looking at? Let me just kind of list them for fun. And Bob, you can come back and we can discuss any of them in particular. Uh, One that you and I Actually worked on together for North Central University is is clearly programmatic array. Um, I remember at least in our day, and I'm sure it's changed now. It's you know several years now, but you know we looked at all 1,100 graduate programs in the United States. We looked at them in terms of employment in, in job growth in that, or uh, interest from consumers in joining them, irrespective of job growth, um, kind of tuition costs and all that. And we had a robust conversation about both academic vertical and individual programs in terms of what was right for our institution, what was not. Uh, I think it's important to say we really engage faculty, uh, both at the you know, individual faculty and deans in that conversation about what they thought was right in their academic area. And for at least for our institution, we laid out a game plan of the kind of 36 new degrees that we thought were important and we would pursue through accreditation uh while we also evaluated all of our existing programs for potential you know things that we wanted to wind down
0: how many degrees we picked 36 degree areas 36 degree areas how many of those did you actually launch we actually ended up
1: launching we actually got uh um accreditation approval for all 36 uh then the uh, and so uh i would say we launched all eventually we launched all of them although i transitioned out of north central in the middle of that process but i i know that we had regulatory authority to launch all of them but that took about three years so mm-hmm. you know i think the thing in the programmatic area because you have to get it through your own institution then you have to get it through program uh you have to get it through accreditation then you may have to get it through programmatic accreditors depending on what subject area you're in and then you have to have the resources to launch and the personnel and the quality of uh, quality curriculum. Uh, you have to think of it. Uh, in my view, you know, programs are a long term continuous process. It's not something you can do in reaction to a, uh, you know, let's say a revenue problem today. That it's not a short term fix. I think it's a long term trajectory for
0: an institution. So how many uh, programs did you launch in the first two years after you picked 36? Uh, I don't
1: know the, I don't remember the exact number, but I think in the area of 10.
0: So, yeah, I, I brought it up because you don't see a whole lot of people who can launch 10 programs in two years. Uh, yeah. How did they actually do? You know, you know, it, you know, honestly, they did well and we
1: were very happy with them. But it's a little like, you know, preparation is everything. You know, it's it's all the work you do to make that determination, to get buy-in. Uh, across the institution to get buy-in with faculty. Uh, you know, your success is really based on, you know, what whether the championships or one in the off season, right? I mean, right. it's all the work you do before that that really ends up them being successful. I mean, you can launch a lot of programs, but if you haven't done the prep work, you haven't done the socialization, you don't have the buy-in, that, that's where you get in trouble. The, the, the data, if you will, around what's attractive, that's pretty straightforward.
0: Except uh, I think a lot of people go to market without it. Um, well, but, so, Hey, uh, I'll
1: give you, a, I'll give you a
0: shameless plug. That's why they should call you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, how was this process you used to arrive at the 36 different from how you would chosen programs before?
1: well, to some extent, we inherited the programs that were,
0: you know, divine, you know,
1: at the, you know, when I joined the institution, I think, you know, thankfully, those were, you know, very well considered, and those were good, we actually didn't end up retiring many programs, although, you know, I think an institution has to look at that, I think of it as gardening a little bit, you know, where do you take things out that are not doing so well that where you want to move on, and then where do you, you know, plant kind of new seeds. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I think we didn't have so much of the retirement side but that I think is a legitimate uh exercise for an institution uh what we we knew there were areas that were new to us and and, and yet academically important and frankly economically important to to students and so we wanted to be in those areas I think the important point too and I, I read your materials that you send out is the other thing is the world's changing so fast and uh you know th- there are there are degree programs in areas that didn't exist five and ten years ago. So I think you know it's incumbent on an institution to think about you know how are the academic disciplines that they support evolving and where are the kind of new flavors of that academic discipline uh, you know turning themselves into
0: degrees. Yeah, I'm waiting for the first program on ChatGPT. I'm uh,
1: sure. I'm sure. I'm sure boot camps coming out soon.
0: Uh, it's already out. The boot camps are out. Yeah, <laughs> somebody just sent me a, a notice today. Um, I'm not sure what you would do if you wanted to build an entire academic program around that, but uh, it's, it'll be on its way. Right. Um, uh, to keep going on these, this little list, I think the other thing, and of course, this is maybe just out of my
1: background, uh, you know, I think you have to look at modality. Um, you know, there's so many institutions that are going online now, um, or looking at hybrids, hybridization of both online learning, particularly for the didactic portions of whatever the degree program is, Mm -hmm. as well as as on ground. Uh, So, you know, I'd say probably most of your audience says, look, we already have online programs. But, uh, you know, I think clearly if you're an on ground institution exclusively, you have to think about, you know, whether you want to be online, what's the appropriate way to your mission that you, uh, you know, apply online. And then I think it's terribly important in online to understand that there are some pretty well understood now best practices in that area. Uh, there are ways of, let's say, scoring c- curriculum now uh, on well-recognized rubrics uh, for quality. Uh, there's, you know, pretty good standards in terms of how to teach online uh, versus teaching in, in the friendly classroom. And and so, you know, I think it's one online is one thing that's just easy to say as a word, but then, you know, how do you really create something that's equal to the quality of your institution in a different modality? That's a a big opportunity. And and certainly we see that, you know, a lot of institutions, particularly in the nonprofit sector that were, you know, kind of, you know, building on the success that a lot of the for-profits had maybe a decade or a decade and a half ago, um, you know, are really getting heavily into online. And they're finding that a real source of, of growth and kind of expansion of their brand geographically beyond what they, where their normal recruiting area might be. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what other things have you, you seen out there?
1: I think the other thing too is you know and you mentioned boot camps. I think the other thing is I think the broad definition is alternative credentials, and I think that you know I would encourage an institution to think maybe through their school of continuing ed. Uh, you know if if their modality is is one kind of option, the other option is really you know alternative credentials to kind of degrees. I think that I think they're complementary in my own view. Uh, you know, everybody talks about stackable and those types of things. But, you know, I think that if you're an institution of higher learning and you increasingly want to think beyond traditional students, uh, to lifelong learners, then I think you have to think about the fact that not everything comes in, you know, 60 credits or 120 credits and they don't come in credit hours. In other words, how do learning units break up into different things that are frankly lower absolute costs? They happen faster, but they have higher, shorter term impact. Yeah are more immediate impact. And I think institutions should think more broadly about what their mission is. Is it to confer degrees, which I think is critical, by the way, to our earlier conversation, or is it to provide lifelong learning opportunities? And that may come in you know, many more flavors.
0: You know, I, I'm skeptical about this, not because I don't think there's demand for those, but I don't understand the economics. How do you recruit somebody for a certificate that might take six weeks and cost a few hundred dollars when the cost of acquiring that student might be three times that. Um, well, isn't it about the same to recruit some? The cost to recruit somebody for a certificate as it is for a program?
1: It's a great point, and, and in fact, it's true. Uh,
0: our, my experience
1: has been that the cost of acquisition for a degree program. I mean, I used to be at North Central in the doctoral programs, and those would have lifetime values of thirty thousand dollars plus, and and tuition costs of you know sixty thousand. Um, you have to recruit for a, a degree of 1000 or $1,500 about the same cost. So I think what you have to decide, though, is that you cannot tr- do traditional marketing, what we call B2C consumer marketing in the Internet Call Google. Uh, that, that kind of marketing is not going to work in that environment. I think you have to think much more about accessing your alumni base. You have to think a lot more about accessing your local community. You've got to think a lot more about going through and we'll talk about enterprise relationships in a second but i think you cannot think about traditional kind of consumer marketing uh which has really driven maybe the last 15 or 20 years of online growth in the degree space you're going to have to rethink that model uh if you're going to go into uh the other let me give you one other example real quick if you're in the consumer marketing business just remember that, and I won't speak for your any particular institution, but let's say just in general, for every 100 people you talk to, only two to three of those people are ever gonna end up in a degree program. Therefore, 97 of those people, and you already paid the money to, to talk to them, or at least to get them to show interest, those people are shown interest in some kind of education and have decided not to take one of your degree programs. And so you have to think about mining your the databases of emails and consumer marketing that you're already doing And as I said, community relations, a lot of other ways in which you are not paying traditional uh, acquisition costs in the kind of as it's as it's grown up in the kind of online for profit and not for profit business.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying is, um, if I can't get them to come for a program, let's not waste the marketing money we spent getting them getting to know them. Let's come back and see if we can get them to come for a certificate. So it's a, a second prize, if you will.
1: I don't know if it's a second prize, but the, the answer is yes. I mean, I think my experience in, in my own institutions, by the way, was, okay, we tried for 90 days really hard to get this person to start. And then we put them in what they call a nurturing campaign. And, and you just talk to them every once in a while saying, hey, are you interested now? But in the same thing that they were doing before, which, because we didn't really think about, you know, do we have other programs and we'll call it commercial term products, but I mean, do we have other programs of different lengths and configurations that might, you know, better serve that, you know, potential learner?
0: Yeah, in a sense, they said no to us. Why do we keep going back to them with the same thing? Well, you know, it's not entirely irrational. To some extent, people change their mind. Life extent,
1: you know, circumstances change, both for good and bad. Right? Some things, hey, I'm in the program. My life got harder. I have to drop out. Other things of, hey. Things have cleared up. I now have a window. I want to go in, but but the yield on that is in in commercial terms is very low. So you know, and and institutions of higher learning, at least in my limited experience, you know, tend not to have a very robust portfolio outside of that. That's why, you know, since they've seeded that ground, one one because of their belief in degrees, and two maybe you know they didn't believe it in, it was included in their mission. You know, they don't just don't have a robust product portfolio. In that, in that realm. And, and a lot of those boot camps and alternative credentials come up, and I'll just raise one other point, and then we can move on, is in the area of technology. And the problem is, you know, higher education institutions, at least in my experience, don't operate at the, at the pace of innovation and the pace of change and the updates in curriculum that are required in the technology area. That is, that is tough. So you know, your institution would have to embrace that not only from a marketing strategy standpoint, but also from a programmatic development and updating standpoint. So it's a whole ecosystem that you would have to you do as a part of a strategy to grow. It can't be just like, oh yeah, let's just do some of
0: those. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think uh, there are a couple things here that are in, that I've gonna weave together. I'm not sure they're really you know they're, they're different, but. Um... If you take that tech space and you say, "Look, I've got to have a way of updating my curriculum much more rapidly than I need in other parts of the institution," you know, my English curriculum is not going to change fifty percent every two or three years, um, but new coding languages come along all the time, and you know, there's been a major transition in the analytical ones uh, from R to Python, um, such that as I understand it, most people now would would probably not use R. Um, which people spent decades learning. Uh, so you know that's one. If in a, f- a sense a different business model you need, or a different um, instructional model you need uh, to do that. Um, one of the things that people miss too is when you're online, uh, it's not just about being able to run a Zoom meeting um, for your students. Right. Sure. Uh, somebody has to handle financial aid, and you know those students aren't available between nine and five. Mm-hmm. Uh, admissions. You know, they right. want to come talk to you at nine o'clock at night because that's when they're gonna study. Uh right. bursar's office, you know, registration. All those things need all your operations need to be re-geared um in order to be effective online, or you simply won't be around when the students need you. Um it's, on,
1: I, it's on it's on my list. So I'm gonna to get to that yeah. in a couple of at a couple of points.
0: So you put those two together and you've got really a very different kind of institution you might need to be to be. For example, in the tech space online versus teaching humanities on ground. Correct. You know, abs-
1: absolutely, absolutely right. And that's a, you know, that's the hard conversation I think institutions have to have about what their mission is. And, you know, to what extent they're trying to perpetuate the existing model of higher ed, which I think has become is certainly living in a world of headwinds, or how much they have to innovate and adapt. Uh, and, and that requires a lot of conversation within the institution, both at the administrative level, frankly, and the faculty level.
0: I was a little shocked to find my alma mater. Um, Harvard is now only 30% liberal arts, huge computer science programs, health, and so forth. Um, so yeah, I feel for the liberal arts as a liberal arts graduate, but, um, (laughs) that's where the, I, I suppose the headwinds are blowing strongest.
1: So, so do I. Uh, the next one on my list, um, and this really is about corporate relationships. I think that it's very interesting that, in a sense, you know, corporate training, skill development, upskilling, reskilling is is not something, that, at least in my experience, that um, higher education institutions have really embraced, and and, it, and the need is becoming more and more acute you know, in enterprises of all stripes. Mm. And so, you know, I think it's an interesting question that there's no doubt that higher education institutions have very strong relationships, are really economic engines within their, you know, whatever area they do. Some are national, like like your alma mater, some are very regionalized, like public regional uh, uh, part of state systems. Um, But there's no doubt that those relationships are important, but they tend to be more philanthropic kind of donation and support relationships, not so much where higher education institutions, do they think about or do you want to think about, you know, can you help the educational needs of those, those, you know, enterprises that are part of your community and part of your, you know, influence area. Um, My experience is higher education institutions don't think a lot. Or if they think a lot about it, they, they don't have very effective strategies in that area. And yet I think it's becoming increasingly important not only for the educational institution to grow, but honestly also for the uh, you know for solving the you know skill gap needs and, and uh, training needs of uh, their constituent institu- of, uh, enterprises. Can you give me an example? Uh, yeah, I, well, I'll give you one. I I'll give you a couple of data points because I'm, I'm looking here to my left here a couple of things. Uh, McKinsey did a study, and they said 87% of companies say they have skill gaps or expect to within a few years. And Corn uh, Ferry told us that skill gaps are estimated to cost U.S. businesses $8.5 trillion by 2030. So I think businesses are saying, look, the people who are joining us, whether they have a degree or not, aren't particularly ready to work in our institution. Our Business on day one, and because of the things you talked about—the rapid change of technology and skill requirements and things within businesses—people are getting kind of out of the ability to do those jobs or the ability to move into the next job. And I think that you know it's interesting that that's a pervasive point. I I, we used to do a lot of work for when a company with uh, uh, one of the big consulting firms. And they said they don't go into a head of HR's office in any kind of enterprise anywhere in the world and don't have this conversation. Hmm. So, you know, I think what you're seeing is enterprises saying, look, we need higher ed. Uh, We need uh, increasingly number of skills, not just training in the individual things of an individual business, individual skills, but really in, in job skills that are related to the ever evolving world of work. And, you know, I think it's a, an important conversation for a higher ed institution to say, you know, do you think that's part of your job? Do you think that's part of your mission? And do you, and can you devise strategies by which you can effectively handle the people in, you know, that are important to you? I mean, if you're in in any city, in any major institution, there are big businesses around you and small businesses around you that I, you know, I'll go out on the limb and say, need your help. And the question is, Are are you, is it part of your mission to help them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the stars here has been the deal between Starbucks and ASU, as I recall. Um, They put 15,000 people through school the last last time I knew the number. Uh, And I think it's really a few things that are going on there um, from what I've heard. One is, yeah, there's skill training that's absolutely needed. Um, The other part though, is it's a retention vehicle And increasingly an attraction vehicle in a very competitive job market. There is a loyalty that people feel when you've invested in their education. And of course, if you can find somebody who will pay for your education in today's world, that makes it um, that both the employer and the job itself much more attractive. um, If you can uh, tick those two boxes at the same time, and have a job and get educated.
1: No, that's right i no, i think i think it's been well demonstrated by a number of companies that by investing in education by getting people degrees that they have a retentive benefit and that retentive benefit more than pays out the uh investment um obviously if the company pays you stay away from my earlier point of a headwind in the uncertainty that title four is today um, and that certainly is a benefit to the student to not have that burden uh, but you know I think the, the interesting thing is, I think we're at the early stages of that. And I, you know, congratulations to, you know, Starbucks for taking that initiative and kudos to them for that and for the people who are, you know, ASU and things who are supplying those degrees. But, you know, that's still a very degree centric, you know, kind of mm-hmm. view of the world. And, and that's important as we just discussed earlier. But I think it's not the whole story. So, you know, there was, as people who got that degree, um, you know, how did their job requirements change or requirements the next year? Is the degree that they got this year really applicable to the promotion they're going to get four years from now? Or is that the foundation? And that's great. But there are other things that have to happen on top of that. I'm yeah. a subscriber to there are other things that have to happen on top, and lifelong learning is really not just a, di- you know, a, a you know platitude. It really is something that's becoming very true today, and that you have to figure out how to do that. Businesses are figuring that. The question is, do institutions see themselves of higher learning see themselves as being innovative enough to figure out well, well, how do we in a sense help solve
0: that problem? So let me probe there a little bit too. I mean, if you're going to help solve a problem, the the catch is that it takes a while uh, to develop a program or a certificate, um, and then you know you'd like to run it for a while in order to uh, both to educate students and to make sure that it pays back the institution for its investment. Who has a crystal ball that can tell you where what's really going to be growing, uh, you know, and and still be there for you four or five years from now?
1: Right. Well, I think there's two answers to that, and I don't have I don't have like an easy answer. I mean, I would I would be doing something different if I if I knew the answer to that question fully. But I think there one there are there are enduring skills, there are enduring competencies, there's enduring knowledge uh, that that you know transcend that, and and that's what a lot of higher ed does do quite well. Uh, and and I think What's this will also tell you there are soft skills that are also enduring. You know, how do you communicate? How do you Relate to other people. How do you show empathy? You know, th- those are important traits that, in a sense, you know, transcend the the next, you know, uh, you know, language or or, or, or particular scope. But I think the other part of it is, I think that, you know, just like you discussed earlier, and and I would ask the audience to, you know, think about your own institution. I mean, at what pace do you really work? And does that pace really consonant with in a sense, the needs of your students or your constituents, in this case, it might be a business. And I have a feeling the time frame of change and innovation is very different. Um, and therefore, if you're going to participate effectively in that area, both for an enterprise and a student, you have to think about well, how do we re-engineer our processes so that we can, you know, adapt and innovate much more quickly. And you know, there are other enterprises and other industries that have thought about that. You know, there was how do we do things you know, quicker? How do we not invest so much? How do we fail fast and, and adapt? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, literature, and there's a lot of, you know, thinking that has gone into, you know, as, as the economy accelerates in terms of its rate of change, you know, how do institutions evolve? ilk, you know, how do they adapt?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, having worked in corporate America for a long time, I think we often look at higher ed and say it's slow. But oh, my God, can corporations be slow? Sure. Um, and, you know, you and I both seen entire companies swallowed up because they just didn't adapt to really whole industries that just don't, you know, long distance, it was an industry. Right. It doesn't, the whole industry no longer exists. Um, so it's, you know, that it's easy to underestimate higher ed's ability to change. And it's also easy to overestimate uh, the speed with which other large institutions of any kind, um, you know, governments or, or, or industry can change. But I was really relieved when when COVID came through and proved that actually when higher ed puts its mind to it, it can change really fast. Right. Um, you know, we put millions of students online overnight. Now we've got to find a way to replicate that. Yeah. Um, well,
1: I yeah, I just think it's a it's an opportunity for the audience to be thinking about, you know, in their own institution, you know, do they see employees and non-traditional students uh, and, and, and businesses that they have relationships with as one of their constituents yep. and do they are they if they want to you know go after that i think they've got to think beyond degrees um, and i think they have to think differently about their processes and their time frame and rate of change not because they're particularly bad at or it, so it's just the requirements of that task are different
0: yeah the niche has shifted yeah um uh, so the, that, the, the other one, good. Yeah, go ahead. Cause that, I'll just finish
1: know. up with, I'll just finish up with one more. And it, 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 I, I said I would come back to it because you talked about it. it there, there are three things, at least in my experience in kind of the more traditional, you know, marketing and and recruiting students into online programs. There are three things that are most important. Um, is it is it the program I want? Is it a price that works for me? Is it at least an online, it's maybe it's four things. It's at least in least an online is it is it is it at an institution that's near me, even if it's online? Mm-hmm. Uh the, the, the importance of proximity is is amazing. But the one I want to talk about is the fourth, and that is time to admit. you is that it, the time it takes me to make a confession? No, it's the time the institution is to admit me. And so the conversion rates, I I've seen the data. The conversion rates are very directly proportional or inversely proportional to the amount of time it takes you. So when you think at your institution about how long it takes from somebody to be interested for you to admit that person and for them to be able to accept that admissions, I think that that is something that, you know, in a traditional on-ground, at least when I was growing up, you know, that is a, a you know, at least a four or five-month process, right? Uh, there are people today experimenting with the, you know, equivalent of AI bots and all that particularly with professional admittance policies um, that are trying to do it in under an hour. Mm. And so, you know, with everything to be verified and all that, you know, uh, you know, later, and, and there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And, and look, I, your audience is saying, well, what about accreditation? What about there's a lot of things going on. But just think about the broader issue here where there are people now saying, look, I want to take an interested party and never have a person talk to them, gather all of their data and make a provisional admission in under an hour. That is the kind of world that people have to think about whether they want to participate, don't, whether it's legitimate or not. But that kind of adaptation is something that's going to be you know, really, really important for people to think about, because the traditional way in which our timeframes operate, in which we, you know, admit people and processes are probably going to put institutions at a competitive disadvantage if they want to grow in an increasingly competitive marketplace, where particularly in online, where there isn't the kind of, um, you know, kind of, you know, they don't have some of the kind of hometown, you know, uh, advantages. Advantages.
0: Well, you know, you you mentioned time to admit as part of the admissions process, but don't you have another factor, which is when can I actually start school? That, yes, um, that shows up in a couple
1: of uh, different uh, cases, but it's not one of the top three. Mm. Uh, But it does factor in later, which is, okay, you've admitted me now, you know, can I start now? Or, you know, we see this a lot in community colleges, particularly in healthcare. Well, I only start two times a year, and so you've got to wait six months, you know, that that is, you know, increasingly difficult. Um, and again, I will tell you, North Central University, because we had a a one-on-one teaching model, we had 52 starts a year. So you talk about there are people trying to, you know, kind of innovate that cohort model and trying to, you know, make it more flexible for customers. I mean, ours was unique because we were very doctorally focused. So I wouldn't say to everybody on the audience that, you know, that's something that, you know, you should sincerely contemplate, but the, the broader point is that people are used to in the consumer marketplace today, uh, you know, very immediate uh, responses. You can get a mortgage in under 40 minutes or whatever. You know, the, the things that used to take weeks are now taking, you know, uh, hours. And right. so I think you have to think about how that applies. And if you want to create competitive advantage and grow in a world of headwinds, you know, can you think about your processes and your target audiences, and you know how you're going to operate in a more, you know, everyone says you know, kind of in a more Amazon-driven world.
0: So I'll have to be able to deliver your campus to my doorstep in 24 hours or less. Well, um, you
1: know, you know, nobody thought a decade ago you could do that in consumer goods, and and now you do. So I right. think it it, it it's important. It's important. Yeah, yeah I know. It. It's important to be, uh, you know, just thinking you know, kind of an environmental scan out and saying, look, the, world, the world's expectations, what you expect as a consumer in the consumer world kind of sets to some extent your expectations more broadly. And, you know, how do you think about what is appropriate? Because they're not everything is appropriate. What's appropriate, and not appropriate as you try to innovate your approach to the market, because in a sense, if you want to grow, um, then you have to kind of look at analogs. And, you know, I think the consumer analog in terms of customer experiences is, is relevant.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Especially if you think of the analogs around consumption of content um, as opposed to goods. Uh, you know, that used to be I watch TV and I, I watch whatever you want me to watch and all the ads that are there. And I can only watch it at 6 p.m. if I want to watch X. And, um, you know, that's just not the way it works anymore. I, if I want right. to watch something, I'll watch it when I watch it. Uh, when I want to, I'll watch it on whatever device I want to. And, um, you know, and by the way, I'm not going to watch ads. Um, So it's really been a fascinating change, I think, does ripple into higher ed, um, especially the online portion of higher ed, that that I'll I'll learn anywhere on any device at any time what I want to learn, which, by the way, doesn't fit really a degree. It's much closer to a certificate. I want to learn how to do this particular thing right now. And, wow. and I would
1: argue, I think that's right. And I would argue, if higher risk institutions want to see that, those people, that revenue and things, maybe because they can't acquire them, whatever, it's a totally legitimate choice to say, look, let let a commercial boot camp do that, or a for profit X do that, or or whomever, um, or you know, let let an enterprise hire a training company. But but I don't think that's that 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 is a choice that should be evaluated. In yeah. does and 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 in an evaluated is that something that your institution if you're looking at it and saying look i'm doing this i like my revenue trajectory i don't i like the student participation i don't if you want to change that then you have to start thinking about i think more expansively about you know are there parts of adjacent markets if you will to use commercial terms that that you're seeding away to other more entrepreneurial maybe more commercial terms because you're not adapting to that and it's a choice do you want to or don't you and there's no right or wrong I think it's just a question of what are you willing to think through and do and how well can you execute against that and you know is that fitting with where you want to take the institution and if you want to grow I think it's at least should be on your list for consideration
0: yeah you know I I I, I actually think I disagree to a, a a point on that which is um I don't think a responsible uh, leadership team um, and faculty really have the prerogative to commit institutional suicide. And um, if you don't change, that's really what's happening. You know, if, if you're Harvard, you're fine, right? You you know, you go from admitting 3% of your students to 4% of your students, and that solves your admissions problem. Um, but for all the rest of us, um, you know, it's you've got to really hustle to get students. And I don't think... I've met a college yet that was able to go down the path of shrinking to adjust um, and come out of that healthy um, or come out of it at all. Yeah. Um, it, you really have to make the changes for growth if you're gonna survive, um, especially for example, as a small independent, if you don't, you know, if the state's not gonna back you, you're not a public, um, then I, I just don't think standing still works um, as a strategy
1: yeah i agree with that i don't think standing still is very hard to cut your way to prosperity yeah. um and if you find you know if you're in the audience and listening to this and you find yourself in that situation i think bob's you know perspective and advice is absolutely right if for some reason you're in the audience and you don't have that experience you know maybe you went to bob's alma mater or something like that or you got a big endowment or whatever i just won't speak for every institution because i think the diversity of people listening to this all have different circumstances and what I'm what I'd like to do is just say there's no one right answer for any institution, but I would say, you know, I gave you five, six, seven things to think about if you wanted to grow, those are the areas that I would go explore. I just wouldn't be so presumptuous sitting in my chair to say this is the answer for you, because only you, your administration, your faculty, your 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 constituencies oh, yeah. and community can really make that decision. Um, but here's where I do agree hundred percent with you is that. The, you have to make, I would argue, you have to make acts of commission. Mm-hmm. You 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 know, you have to decide what you are willing to do, what you're not willing to do, and then understand the, the consequences of that and say, yeah, that's ultimately right. That's what we want. Uh, because I think the idea that, in a sense, in a world of headwinds, um, I don't think just standing still, in a sense, is the answer. But I don't want to be prescriptive because I don't know exactly what's right for any
0: particular person on this call and what their institution is facing. Well, and one thing I've found is, and I think we'll find as we go through more of these webinars is there are many, many paths to growth um and colleges can be very creative about this, many have been um, so picking the right one for you really is the it, it, the right ones I, I had one of my one client said, "Yeah, our a strategy was all of the above yes. uh, and uh, I think if they thought of one more tactic or whatever, they would have added that too um yeah. so. But there are a lot of these different tactics that you can you can use.
1: Sure, and that's why Bob, this is such a value. Hopefully, and I believe it, uh, you know, a valuable tool for your your customers and your and for all the audiences listening today is that you know I'm here. Thank you for having me. You know, I give you six areas to go think about. Can you do all of them? No. Should you? No. But boy, it's will give you six. lists. And if you listen to three more of these podcasts with you know uh, other folks sitting here in my chair. You know, they're going to give you six more and six more and six more, and it's going to give you a really nice array of possibilities from people who, in a sense, are bringing you their experience, you know, to give you a good, you know, kind of uh, landscape that you can evaluate.
0: Well, let's, um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk um, now not about individual tactics. I want to do a little more of that, actually, Uh, but then shift to sort of the bigger levers, um, leadership, Mm -hmm. organization, uh, maybe even compensation that has to be thought about, but first, a, a little bit more on the tactical side. What have you tried that didn't work?
1: Most of the things that didn't work for us really, and you're getting at this, really came um, at the at the more people level, at the human level, the lack of alignment, uh, the lack of buy-in to, to to do something. You know what I mean? If we if we didn't get you know, if, I would say where programs were less successful is because we didn't kind of get the right buy-in across faculty, deans, administration, uh, regulators. Uh, you know, to what we were trying, what we were trying to do. Um, so, I, you know, my sense is most things, you know, are less good or fail. You know, to use the term, um, really based a lot on kind of a lot of the human factors and a lot of the, uh, you know, kind of a lot on the execution. Um, I'm, not, I'm not as big a fan of strategy. I mean, I think strategy is important. I used to be a strategy consultant, so we can talk about that. But you know, strategies are a very important starting point, but too many few people kind of end there and say, oh, i got a great strategy. It all in my world is more of on the operating side really comes down to human beings and alignment and buy-in and execution and the day-to-day tactics it takes to build up to that strategy. And so, you know, I'm a big fan when you get below that level of, you know, this major area we're going to look at, we're going to look at online, you know, there's, you know, all the really tactical and operational things
0: it takes to make that, you know, a quality initiative. As you think about that from an organizational standpoint, what uh, kinds of changes do you need to make to get the organization to open up the change, to grow? Um, What are the barriers as well?
1: I think, you know, maybe go out on the limb here a little bit. I I think the biggest thing, and and, and I think it's incumbent on leadership, um, is to create an environment where people can disagree and really talk things out. I think that, you know, my impression is that the hardest part is when people don't tell you what they're really thinking. They just, you know, yeah, they just agree with you so you can move on. They're not willing to have those difficult conversations. And so therefore, you think you have agreement, but you really don't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and and that that shows up when the proverbial rubber hits the road and you're operating and you have a you know a number of people or you know groups or constituencies that are just really not on board in in the real world of is it really are you really doing it? you know it might have been you know you know passive acquiescence at the meeting um, And so I think it's really, really hard and leadership has to think hard about this, which is, do we have an environment where people are really telling us what they think? Are they agreeing? Do they just want to, you know, I just want to get to my retirement. I just want to get to the next thing. I just want to, you know, I'm just, I just got to get to the day. Meeting. It isn't worth it. You know, yeah. it just isn't worth the agony either to disagree or to try to, you know, change things. I think that's a tough cultural issue in organizations and and it it tends to bias you toward the status quo. It tends to, you know, and, and that's a hard one. And, and there's no easy answer to it. And I certainly am not smart enough to, to give you some, you know, quick tip on it. Uh, and they're probably smarter people than I to, to think about that. But I, I, but I would be very cognizant of, you know, how important human beings are in, in all of this
0: and what they really think and what they really think. Yeah. And there, I think what you're saying is it's critical that you have an environment where they're willing to express what they think um, any sense of how you create that environment? I
1: I, I wish I knew better, uh, you know, honestly, and I, I'm sure there are people who, who've who studied this and, and have a better prescription than George Burnett does. Um, you know, all I can say from my kind of my experience pool is that, uh, it really has to do with, to some extent, modeling that kind of leadership, being willing to take criticism. I remember one time we put in a new LMS and most of the people didn't like it. And somebody got up and complained at a meeting. And the question, the whole conversation at the meeting was, how is George, I'm the president of the university, how am I going to react to that criticism? Am I going to shut that person down? I mean, you know, how am I going to react is going to set the tone. I think, thankfully, I was very accepting of that criticism. It was a pretty good critique. Um, but it, it just gave permission to people to express that. And we went and we actually started delving into, okay, what are these problems? What else do people have in it? It seemed to open that up, but I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to give people a glib answer here and say, this is easy, but I do think the behaviors that the organization models, if you're a leader in an organization the behavior that you model and, and the, and the willingness to create forums, why would you raise, Hey, I'll bet you, half of you people are thinking this criticism, I'm going to bring it out. So I don't make you do it. You know, how do you, um, you know, the other technique, and I'll give you one, is what, what, I don't know, they have different, people call them tiger teams, some call red team, blue team, you know, where you you take two sides of an argument and you make teams argue those so that all the arguments get out pro and con. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, you don't assign it to some individual person who wants to be critical. You assign it to a team that says, look, the negative case is this. And the positive case is this. And then you try to engage the organization in saying, well, what are the merits? Or uh, you know, how do people come out on weighing all of those? Because you've got all the criticisms out on the table. You haven't shut them down. You've in fact put them out there for consideration.
0: Yeah, the thing I would add to that that I found really effective in, in facilitating meetings, actually, when there was strong disagreement, um, which, to your point, that's actually what you want to encourage. Uh, to go back and say, okay, what are the criteria by which we make this decision? Mm-hmm. Because very often that's actually lost in the dialogue. Uh, and you, you know, you you write them up. You know, whether it's a red team or the blue team, the criteria should be the same. Um, and then you just go down the list very qualitatively, as when we were doing it. And it's surprising how many times all the pluses end up on one side of the ledger. Um, you know, this mm-hmm. choice really is better than that choice on all the things we care about it's not that um, it's perfect but against our criteria it looks very good and the other does not right sometimes it ends up being 50-50 and then you really haven't gotten very far but right. i've been surprised how many really difficult dialogues uh, can be solved to just say okay well oh how do we actually decide this what are, you know right. what are the criteria we want to do and then just lay it out and see how the the choices map
1: yeah uh,
0: it, it, I was, as I say, surprised that it worked. Um,
1: Make, it, it makes okay. sense. And maybe the only other build I would do on that is the other thing that's interesting is having a conversation about, is it okay to lose an argument? Mm. Is it okay to say, look, the consensus of the group is X. It wouldn't be my personal choice, but I can get behind
0: it. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I don't have to be passive aggressive. I don't have to just sit there and, you know, and fold my arms I can actually get behind something, even if it's not exactly what I wanted, what I
0: wanted. Yeah. And
1: that's a cultural conversation people have to have. In other words, when you don't get your way, what are you going to, you know, how are people going to behave about that? You know, is there is there resistance, passive resistance or it's just I'm not going to play or is it okay? You know, that's the way we as an organization, as an institution operate, which is we have fulsome discussions. We get on board. We make a decision it's not good. It's almost by definition, think about politics today. Everything is, you know, 50.1 to 49.9. I mean, you know, there, you know, once you make a decision, can, you know, do people have the cultural norms to, you know, rally behind that decision and, and to, you know, everybody gets behind it and, and pulls in the same direction. I mean, that's something that a lot of organizations haven't kind of sorted out. I mean, do, do we all believe those are the, you know, operating rules of the road? And so I think there's some, again, I think there are, again, more expert opinions and analysis and things like that than maybe uh, certainly I can provide. But I think this is a rich area for people to be thinking about in their own institutions, which is, you know, what are our cultural norms? How do we operate? How do we deal with dissent? How do we gain consensus? What is the right, what is the normative operating behavior when you have a consensus? How do you operate going forward? You know, I would say that's a pretty rich area for people to think about because I'll come back to my initial point which is I think most strategies kind of fail on execution and fail on human factors. They don't fail because people got the wrong strategy.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's uh, touch on another area. Um, when you think about some of those other functions in an organization, we've been pretty focused on the academic side and leadership. Um, mm-hmm. What has to change outside of that marketing admissions, finance, financial aid, uh, what other areas need to be uh, re for growth?
1: Well, I, I would focus on one in particular, and that's technology. And I mean, it's it's almost you know it's so easy to say, but I think that at least our experience is that the in a sense, if you think about time and innovation and rapidity, that you know the ability to use technology, which has evolved so dramatically in the last you know twenty years, uh, you know to to change processes, to simplify them, to go faster to speed to admit. I mean, that's a policy issue, but it's also a technology issue. And so if I think about the you know the things that have to change, most of it is human, but, but I think so much, so much of your capabilities and the ability to, in a sense, make policies in the real world in terms of customer intera- learner interaction and that type of thing is really coming through the platforms that people are increasingly using. Uh, you know, I think that's a, a ripe area for people to be thinking about, one, because the feature function, you know, the c- customer experience or the learner experience, the student experience is, is so richly informed by how they interact, not only with human beings, but how they interact with technology. I think that's a just a critical, you know, part of, of, of bringing a, a, an institution, a, a, a learner experience to life whether it's just in the classroom, it still is huge. So I would say, you know, obviously, you know, I prioritize administration and faculty and governance and those types of things is critically important, but I think you have to think more holistically about particularly your processes and about technology to kind of really those. E- effect those, enable those in today's yeah. world.
0: And hopefully not to blow up in your hand. Yeah. Um, so uh, as I as I. Old French joke where the punchline is in technology is the most certain path to ruin. Yeah. Uh, and uh certainly we've all we've all been through some sort of a tech transition. It wasn't pretty, but I agree with you. What which any particular technologies do you think are important at this point?
1: It's probably beyond my area of expertise. So I just won't, you know, pontificate for the sake of of chatting. Yeah. But but I do think you have to be thinking about hard. A lot of these AI and bot technologies, and it, there's a lot of that human interaction that's getting substituted by those, and they're getting increasingly better. I know in the consumer world, you know, I'm running into. What, I used to be at AT&T. Like you, I know you worked with this there. Um, you know what we used to call, uh, you know, uh, IVRs, which was you know kind of uh, you know press seven, press seven. Well, it, I'll tell you, they're pretty good right now, and you know, you in terms of both language recognition you know, these now these large language models, I'd be thinking hard about how my customer interactions are informed by those kinds of uh, technologies. I can tell you the people who are thinking about, you know, doing this entire uh, admissions process, um, you know, uh, on, on based on business rules in an hour are, are really thinking about that interaction with, in a sense, a much more, it's funny, kind of high touch human reaction, but not using humans. And right. so I think that technology is going to, you know, you're going to see that, rolled out in some of the more innovative let's say non-degree players. And the question is at what point does that infiltrate into the more traditional you know degree degree uh,
0: processes? Yeah, I find it really interesting. I mean I think um, when I think back to getting grades on papers, it, I think the comments I usually got were one letter long. you know it was a you know ABCDE. <clears throat> and maybe if the person was particularly loquacious, you might get something like good job. Um and really a chatbot can do better than that. Um right. and a chatbot, if the professor chooses to review it, would be even better still. Um, right. but they can, you know, it could automatically give you good feedback on the structure of an essay, um, even to the point of rewriting it for you, um, to show you what it would look like. So I think there can be a lot of applications out there right. uh that take some of the routine burdens off faculty's hands. Um, I do think for the foreseeable future, they'll need strong oversight because they, I don't know if you've heard about this in chat GPT, but it does this thing they call hallucination um, oh. where, you know, it, it just has too much CBD or whatever in the uh, machine. And uh, all of a sudden it just starts making stuff up. <laughs> um, and, you know, it could be in the middle of something where the first paragraph is right. and The third paragraph is right. But the one in the middle is just, you know, it going off on its trip. Um, I think I think we all have
1: to have the perspective because we all kind of read the headlines and you know
0: people love it. And hate it. I mean, this stuff
1: is, I mean, I'm sure it's been in the lab for a while, but in the public consciousness, this is less than a year old. So I think the you know the, you know we have to understand that you know this stuff in in our normal time frames so that we think about you know what what it, institutions of higher learning we write you know decade long strategic plans and things like that. I mean, the amount of change that we're going to see. In, in these kinds of technologies is dramatic, but even look at the, I mean, just cause I watch ads like all of us do when we're, when, when we're not doing the surfing or not paying the extra amount for our streaming services. I mean, just look at the ads for Grammarly that says, okay, okay I want to be assertive. Well, here's the way to say that, you know, there's a lot of things that are, are, are becoming aids to, you know, how people, uh, how people interact. And just that we in higher ed need to be cognizant of those things and figure out and be thoughtful about you know, in what ways they apply to whatever strategies for growth that you know we wanna pursue. Now,
0: I'll move off this tech subject in just a moment in AI. I think one of the things that I've heard from people is that when you get somebody whose language skills are weak or they may have a linguistic disability, all of a sudden this AI stuff becomes a really powerful tool. Um, and I think that's very encouraging in a sense. Um, it gives somebody with dyslexia a way of you know writing an essay that, you know, is apparently, you know, more coherent than they might have been able to write by themselves, even though the idea was in their head. So I find that, you know, sort of thing really very encouraging, as opposed to all the other real problems we have with it, which is, uh, isn't it just kind of plagiarism in some strange way? And how do you learn to write an essay if you never write one? Um, So we'll see how that all plays out over the next decade. And you're right, I think ChatGPT hit the radar in December. Um, so maybe it was last November when we first started to hear about it.
1: So we're all subject matter experts now, you know, two months of reading the, the headlines. But, well, I, you know, I, I many think
0: technology. So this is one where you can just go online and play with it, um, you know, and and watch these astonishing things it does. Um, yeah. We had it write poems for our marketing campaigns and they were much more effective uh, than our regular marketing campaigns uh, because people thought it was cool to get a poem. Uh right. So, uh, you know, who knows where we'll go with it, but, uh, and one other functional question for you, actually, maybe two, one is, uh, finance. Um, does that have to be thought about differently when you're trying to grow? Do you need a different CFO to be uh, the CFO of a growing institution than one that's going to hunker down?
1: Um, I think the jobs are I don't know if you need a different individual. I think the jobs are different. Um I've I've lived in shrinking organizations, and in shrinking organizations, the the emphasis is on cost control. And I've lived in growing organizations. By the way, growing's more fun, if anybody has a choice out there. A great deal more fun. Uh, It's a lot more fun. And in, in growing organizations, it really the the big job from a financial standpoint in my view is how to use cash and the deployment of capital um and and those are those are probably two different skill sets that doesn't mean the same individual doesn't have it but i think you have to think about you know what is the what are the financial requirements of the institution given what our not only mission is but what our trajectory is and i would argue to the extent that you deploy these strategies they're going to take you know deployment of money capital mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, you know, probably hire new skill sets that you didn't have before. Uh, you have to bring more people in the organization if you're growing, as opposed to departing, you know, depart, you know, separating people when you're declining. And so, I think a CFO, it's both a mindset and, frankly, a skill set um, that would change based on your trajectory.
0: Yeah, what I think is complicated, in particular, in higher ed, is that, and this can be true uh, in corporate America as well, but often isn't. Um, to survive here, you know, with the level of fixed costs that you have at a normal higher ed institution, um, it makes the cost cutting side very, very difficult to get things in balance by cutting costs, um, because right. there's just a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't uh, decline naturally with volume, um, and so you end up in the situation where you have to be able to really do the do some cost cutting, but you've got to take that money almost immediately and reinvest it in growth. Um, in order to get the thing moving forward, to get the flywheel spinning, if you will. Um, And doing both those things at once, I think is particularly difficult uh, because they feel like they're contradictory, but they actually aren't. Um, I was talking with one uh, provost who said, "You know, we have about the same number of faculty we did before. And my client breathed a sigh of relief because they were talking to him about how to manage growth. And he said, and then he went on to say, we started with 150, then we went down to 129 or 120, um, and then we built back to 150. Oh, by the way, almost all in different areas than right. the, the 30 that went away. That's a very hard thing to do at an emotional level, right? Uh, right? You know, it just feels like it's somehow not fair, not to mention all the humans that you know, and the people that you care about that get affected on the, in the downside. But uh, I think it's a particular challenge for leadership in general and finance in particular. Right,
1: and, and you you made an important point that I'd like to just re-emphasize too, is that the biggest issue in all this is that it's not just about numbers, it's just not about, you know, uh, syllabuses and, 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 and catalogs, it's about human beings. And, and that is what makes it so hard is, you know, any kind of transitions and change, shrinking is hard because, you know, you're taking away people who have livelihoods and families and are part of your community and all that and how do you do that is very difficult both emotionally it's tough on, on them it's tough on you it's tougher on them uh but you know how do you do that and then do you send that you're just not that's not just one vector but you're doing it you probably are growing back in in different areas with different skill set with deeper people because they're not as fungible across some of these newer initiatives than you know some of the more legacy uh, parts of an institution so uh, you know, again, I, I come back maybe to my theme is, you know, strategies. You know, is you know, uh, you know, uh, drama is easy, comedy is hard. You know, or strategy is easy. You know, human beings, it's difficult. And and, right. and I think we have to understand that. You know, at the end of the day, it all kind of boils down to people and relationships and community. And you know, how do you how you manage through that is a, t- a tough job of the leader in the environment and the respect they show people in both going out and coming in. Is, is I think, you know, important to maintaining the, you know, the character of the institution.
0: You know, it is an interesting point, George, that I uh, astonishingly had not thought of because it really is very obvious. Um, but in many industries, there is a machine that's a central part of the productive process. may even be how the client interacts with you if you think about an ATM or something like that, right? Um, here, our product is delivered by humans um, in real time. Um, and that just, that's a decreasingly true in the world, right? If I make a software package, you know, ultimately the software, you know, goes in and it interacts with my client, uh, there may or may not be any humans that are apparent in that process. Yeah. Um, but, uh, obviously it, it, there are very few companies where it doesn't take humans to actually do the, some of the work, but, um, it is an, it is an especially, uh, human delivered product and, and semi-custom at that.
1: Right. And, and the only bill I, I think that's correct. I think the, the other thing too, at least this is maybe just a almost a lay person. I've only been here 20 years, you know, in, in higher ed. I think a layperson's observation too, is the intensity of the interact, of human interaction and the mm-hmm. length of it and the number of interactions. Mm-hmm. You know, you may interact with an individual at a, a business or whatever, you know, how many times a year, how many aggregate minutes, but when you think about education and that's why at least in our students and I suspect in the audience, your students, uh, you know, the, the intensity of their emotions, the intensity of their interactions are so great because that's the kind of nature of the process, the nature of the learning process, the nature of certainly traditional education and going to school on campus. Uh, even, even I was surprised at how emotionally involved uh, people are in online education. I mean, the idea that this is some kind of a dispassionate transaction of the transfer of knowledge, uh-uh it's not the way it works. It's one of the most intense and why it's so interesting. And I think all of us love to be here. It's just an intense interpersonal, you know, process and interaction and in working with faculty and the feedback of knowledge and working with administrators and, you know, navigating campus, both at the most vulnerable and developmental times of your life as traditional students. And frankly, through the decades after that as non-traditional students. So I think, again, this is it's funny how much of our conversation post the kind of mechanics of how you grow, you know, really come down to so many, you know, important and I think intense, you know, human factors.
0: There's one thing you said when we were working together that I always remembered, which is this time you spend with us in your, you know, uh, frame at at North Central University, you know, online at 11 o'clock at night, um, when you put your kids to bed, has to be the best time you spend all day, Um, which is a, a crazy high standard. Um, but I think it is central to the concept of growth that, um, we've got to help people get past their grade school. I don't want to go to school, right? School's, you know, tedious and, um, and unpleasant and into a different place where school's the best part of their day. Learning is the best part of their day. Um, and I think that's a, a, a very fundamental aspect of this, of growth, both for the individual as well as for the institution.
1: Yeah, I think our, our my experience with non-traditional students in particular, so, you know, for all of you who are doing with
0: traditional students, it's just
1: not my my background, so I won't speak to them. But with non-traditional students, and particularly North Central at the doctoral level, I think it's the most epitome of, you know, kind of terminal degree. I, I never got the feeling this was like check the box, we need to go. I mean, the amount of time, it's extraordinary. Effort, money, uh, but whether they're borrowing it or paying it out of pocket, I mean, this is this is a huge commitment as much as anything else that people are doing in their lives is probably outside of their immediate family and children mm-hmm. um, and therefore if you think about how much time and effort and, and commitment you make to that, then it obviously comes with a lot of emotion and 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 focus and things like that. so I have, I've been I'm in awe in a sense and I, as I suspect a lot of our audiences of what our students do, every day and how they fit this into their lives. And therefore, I think we should be very cognizant of the level of, you know, emotion and involvement and interaction that they, you know, have with their education. That's why why it's both incredibly difficult and incredibly rewarding, you know, kind of all at the same time.
0: Great. Well, oh, that, I'll nope. give you one more.
1: I have to tell okay, the story. just I love this. I always give a graduation speech every year. It's one of the one of the real highlights of being a college president. You get to put the robes on. I'm a big Cam fan, and uh, you know you give the college graduation uh, speech. And, and in an online, it's interesting people travel all over the world to kind of come to graduation, even though they've never seen you. You know, you know, in, in terms of uh, the classroom. Uh, but what I really loved about it is that I always had a, a, a statement in there of the the oldest graduate. And for the three or four years that I gave graduation speeches, the oldest graduate in our doctoral programs were always in their 80s. And I always, it was always 82, 83, 84 years old. And I always loved that, that, you know, it's one of the reasons why we all, you know, put up all the craziness we do to be in this. Um, to be in higher ed is that, the, you know, that this is just a lifelong pursuit and that somebody in their 80s who has no economic gain, this is not about skill sets and all of that, just says, you know what, I want to be, have a doctor next to my name. And it was always the biggest thrill in my professional, uh, you know, life to be able to, you know, you know be able to, you know, hood those kinds agree. hood those kinds of folks. It was just great.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been fun for me. My most, one of my most productive employees is 87 years old um and i love uh, that individual great stuff still excited to come to work um and still a great guy um so bill massey um oh well, hi people. bill congratulations and yeah bill's uh just got through building a whole model for us that simulates um a university so you know i i hope when i'm that age i'll be able to do anything that useful um we'll see so um that's great uh, it's very very uh, helpful and Loved having you on, on the show, so to speak. Um, and I look forward to having all of you back as we bring other industry luminaries um, to talk about their experience and give you a richer playbook for growth and a sense of how to lead that growth. Thank you.